Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The New Statesman. I'm Ida Vok, Europe correspondent at The New Statesman. And you're listening to World Review, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Adam Crafter, a reporter for The Athletic, about Away From Home, a podcast series following the Ukrainian team Shakhtar Donetsk during this year's Champions League season. Hi, Adam. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you just tell us who Shakhtar Donetsk are and what the background of the team is? Yeah, of course. So Shakhtar Donetsk are one of the largest football clubs in Ukraine. They have won kind of over a dozen Ukrainian league titles in their own country in recent times. They are one of the Ukrainian clubs that you would often see compete in the Champions League most seasons. And the, the context is they are from Donetsk, which has obviously been the site of conflict going back not only this year with the full invasion of Ukraine, but all the way back to 2014. If you go back to the annexation of Crimea, the incursions into the Donbass region and Donetsk, Luhansk, the kind of pro-separatist movement that rose up at the time. And as a result of that, Shakhtar Donetsk, despite still bearing the name, have not been able to play in their home stadium, the Donbass Arena which was constructed ahead of the European Championship in 2012, and it was one of the stadiums used during that tournament. And they've not been able to go back there since 2014. And then obviously since the war really intensified in the last eight months or so, they've not even been able to play their European matches in Ukraine itself. They've had to play in Poland. And so what did you set out to do with this podcast series? Can you describe like the kind of aims and then how you went about it? Yeah, so... I suppose given the fact that they are the football club that can't go home, we called it away from home. And the, the aims of it were, we did a, a, what, an interview with their captain, Taras Stepanenko, right at the start of the war in February this year. And at the time, he, his wife, his kids were sleeping in a bomb shelter. And he, I remember him saying to me that he had a baseball bat, his neighbor had a gun, neither of them had ever used 
a gun before, but where they were living was so close to forest area that they would alternatively go up to a vantage point and check where the Russians were coming. And this is the forest near Kiev. And that was where it all started. And I remember after we did that piece around March time, the communications officer at Shakhtar Donetsk, Yuri Sviridov, sent me a message and he said, you know, it's a nightmare here and please don't stop reporting about us until the war's over. And then Ukrainian football initially paused between February and May. And then the government took the decision in the summer that sport should come back because they wanted from a visibility point of view, Zelensky wanted to show that sport can go on, that we continue to live our normal lives, our cultural existence will continue in the face of Russia's onslaught. And as Shakhtar were going back into the Champions League, we approached the club and said, can we follow you during this period? Can we speak to members of the board, players, head coaches, and really try and give an insight into just what it's like to attempt to compete in European football's biggest competition at a time where you're being invaded and you have family and friends who are on the front line. There's a player that we interviewed in the first episode whose father-in-law was killed during the war. They've still never been able to find his body or bury him. So it was incredibly moving. But the general idea was how do you continue to exist in a time of war as a football club. We should get on to what you saw in, in, in the series itself and the content itself. But just before that, can you just talk about the role that Shakhtar plays in Donetsk? Because as I understand it, it's a team with a very long history that I think goes back about a century. And of course, I listened to the first episode and mm. one of the players was comparing Donetsk to cities like Sheffield. Chef, yeah, Sheffield, Dor Dortmund in Germany. Mm. Yes. I suppose that kind of like mining, metallurgical industries, steel, I suppose as well. And yeah, it's a kind of working class city and that's the history of the city. Yeah, Donetsk is, is located pretty close to Russia. I think it's quite interesting, you know, speaking to some of the players and the staff about, you know, because obviously the contentious point around 2014 became the, the kind of Russian separatists and the Donetsk People's Republic. And in, in some ways, Shakhtar, they, in theory, they could have stayed there, right? And been part of the Donetsk People's Republic, but they've always associated themselves as a Ukrainian football club. And it's, I suppose it's interesting what, what they've become during, particularly since the full invasion, as this Ukrainian club that's been traveling Europe, that's been traveling the continent with a team made up of almost entirely Ukrainian players, because a lot of their foreign players as well left the club in the summer. And they've almost become like this emblem of the sporting prowess of the country and this sporting defiance, resilience, and showing that, I suppose, the flame of Donetsk remains Ukrainian in spirit, even if at the moment it remains occupied. And do you have any sense about how the team reflects rifts within, within Donetsk, particularly before and after 2014? Presumably there were lots of people in Donetsk who might have been sympathetic to Russia in 2014 and who might have been disappointed that the team left yet any kind of sense of how that played out i think this is one of the it's like one of the uncomfortable parts isn't it because i think the idea is we to paint it sometimes don't we it's like everyone in ukraine hates russia and everyone in ukraine is completely committed towards the ukrainian cause that, that of course the human nature is that you're going to have some people that are more sympathetic to russia and we know that there's been a huge amount of people who have left ukraine for russia some of whom have been forced others went out of choice over the last eight years in terms of the club itself, you know, I think it's pretty fair to say they are very, there is no real sign of that rift in terms of the people currently working at the football club. 
the messaging was incredibly consistent. It was all about one day returning to a Ukrainian Donetsk, that the Donetsk People's Republic isn't something that they recognize really, that the ambition of, and this is also really interesting, the owner of the football club, Renat Akhmetov, is the, probably the richest man in Ukraine, widely described as the richest man in Ukraine. And even his relationship is super interesting with President Zelensky, because I think it was last year, Zelensky went public and said that he had information to suggest that the Russians were trying to lure Akhmetov into a coup to overthrow President Zelensky. And the thing is, Zelensky never provided any evidence for that. Akhmetov completely denied it. And then during this war, since, well, since February or so, Akhmetov has kind of emerged. Obviously, these things are complicated with very rich businessmen, but the, the general gist is he's been a massive part of the humanitarian effort. He's given up a huge amount of, of cash to the humanitarian effort, something like 80 million US dollars. He's also reduced his media empire because one of the things that Zelensky was trying to do was really clamp down on the power of some of those particularly rich individuals in Ukraine. So that's been an interesting dynamic. But if you speak to anyone at the club, they will just tell you that Akhmetov is a true patriot, that he is someone who is completely committed to a free Ukraine, a democratic Ukraine. And to be fair, even the relationship between him and Zelensky seems to have warmed up quite a lot since the full invasion. Moving on to the actual content of the episode of the podcast series, you follow them along as they play in the group stages of the Champions League. And, and you watch them play in Europe. Can you tell us a bit about what you saw and how they develop? Because they also, I don't want to ruin the suspense, but they do quite a bit better than a lot of people expected in any case than they've done for a while, even before the war, let alone during the war. So they end up doing quite well. Can you just talk about a bit about, about that part of the story? The idea is we wanted to produce something that was accessible to sports fans and football fans, but also, I suppose, to anyone who's generally had an interest in following the war in Ukraine that's interested in the human impacts of the war in Ukraine, anyone who's interested in global affairs or just an underdog story, because actually one of the concerns that the club had before agreeing to give us the access to do this was because they'd lost so many of their foreign players in the summer, they'd been a club that had been best known over the years for recruiting a lot of Brazilian players and very talented Brazilian players, then selling them on for a big profit. And all of a sudden they just had this team of very, very young Ukrainians. I mean, the team that started when they played Real Madrid, the European champions, in their fourth game, had, I think, 10 Ukrainians in the starting lineup, eight of them aged 23 or below, seven of them had come from the club's own youth system, which is very unusual at that level in the Champions League. And it became a real kind of inspiring sporting underdog story. They won their first match of the group stage against Red Bull Leipzig, a team that would who have a team with a valuation that's six or seven times that of what, of what Shakhtar had on the pitch. They go within a minute of beating Real Madrid, that Real Madrid equalised in the last minute. So while our fear when we set out was, what if they lose 4-0 every week? How do you build a narrative around that from a sporting point of view? It actually became a really exciting group stage in big European cities like Leipzig, Glasgow, because they had Celtic, Real Madrid, so Spain as well. It all built up to actually the final game of the group stage being if Shakhtar won that game, they would continue in the Champions League. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer.
Hi, I'm Armando Yanucci. And I'm Anusha Kellyan. And we present Westminster Reimagined on the New Statesman podcast. Each episode, we'll be taking a look at how our politics has got so broken and whether there's anything we can do to fix it. We hear from people shaping our society, from the front line to the corridors of power, alongside campaigners, journalists and satirists, including John Stewart, Ian Hislop, Rosamond Adukissi Deborah, and Catherine Haddon. You can listen to all three series now. Just search the New Statesman podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to newstatesman.com forward slash Westminster Reimagined. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You also went to see the training academy that had moved over to Croatia. What was that like? Yeah, so I worked on this with my colleague, Joey Durso, who used to work at the BBC and now works with us. And he went to visit Split, which anyone who's been to Split will know it as a a kind of budding holiday destination, a fantastic place to visit. What happened at the start of the full invasion in February or March was Shakhtar had so many European football academies, a system of, of developing young talent. And... All of a sudden, these boys, around 50 to 100 of them, needed to be evacuated from the country because of obviously the threat to their life, the fact that their homes were no longer safe. And Shakhtar organized for around 50 to 100 kids to go out of the country on a quite a dramatic coach journey at the time, and they got them to Croatia. And in Croatia, the club has provided housing, food, sporting training. So on the one hand, like it's quite an uplifting refugee story, particularly in the way that Croatia has welcomed them. But at the same time, despite kind of, you know, organizations like UNICEF and Red Cross have provided everything you could want as a young sportsman. But at the same time, like 
they're on the phone every night or whenever they can to their dad who's in army uniform on FaceTime. And the simplicity of their their words to us, I think, would probably be the most moving part of this whole thing, just the simplicity of 14-year-olds who are children explaining in very simple terms, I miss my parents and I want to go home. This is this might be a gorgeous place in Croatia, but it's not it's not home. It's not home. And I would never have thought six months ago that all of a sudden my life would have to be somewhere else, away from my friends and away from my family. And of course, like they're they're not at home in Croatia, but in a sense, as the title suggests, even the team isn't at home in Ukraine because they were playing in in Lviv, I think. Yeah, so they play well. They play their European home games in Warsaw, in Poland. But the Ukrainian Premier League, as I said at the, at the top, returned in the summer on the orders of the government, and that's played in Ukraine. Now, the Ukrainian Premier League games will take place at the weekend, and the Champions League games take place midweek. Which meant every time that Shakhtar had a Champions League game, whereas normally you would just fly in and out of the country on a private jet, they were having to drive to the Polish-Ukrainian border, be held at the border for several hours, then continue the journey on into Warsaw or to wherever they're flying if it's an away game. And as a result, European football clubs now at the highest level are obsessed with micromanaging nutrition and recovery and the gym work and the diet. And they were basically just on the road pretty much every day of the week. And what made their performances all the more extraordinary. But they're not even at home in, in Ukraine, and they haven't been since 2014. They, of course, haven't been in Donetsk. And if we're talking about the occupied territories in, in Ukraine, obviously there are, there are the territories which were occupied this year, but there were also the territories which were occupied since 2014. And of course, Donetsk is one of those. And, and certainly from researching it and talking to people, I think the sense among Ukrainians and among observers is that it, the territories which are most complicated for Ukraine to liberate, where the population will be most hostile to Ukraine, will be these territories which have been occupied since 2014. And so, is there is there kind of any sense that Shakhtar Donetsk will eventually play mm. again in in Donetsk, or or are they kind of just hoping, I suppose, to to play in Ukraine, yeah, not abroad? Yeah, this this was one of the kind of very awkward questions, right? Particularly if you go and give your podcast series a title of Away From Home, at some point you have to try and answer, can they go home? And I think if you listen to what President Zelensky has been saying, he's always talking about we want to liberate the whole of Ukraine, and he speaks almost from a very positive point of view on that. But the reality is that, as you say, those places like Donetsk would be very complicated and probably require years and years of fighting to, to fully liberate. So I, I said to the chief executive, in one of our final interviews, I said to him, "Do you? is there a point at which you maybe bring to an end that aspiration, that hope, that dream of returning a club called Shakhtar Donetsk to Donetsk? And he basically said, well, if we don't have that dream anymore, then almost there's no point of us continuing as a football club because our roots will always be Shakhtar Donetsk. And if they were saying that they will only feel that the war is over when they are able to have a Ukrainian Shakhtar Donetsk playing in a Ukrainian Donetsk in a, in a big game with a stadium full of people who are sympathetic to the Ukrainian cause. And they were very clear on that, that the club's ambition to return, even eight years since first being forced out of their home, remained, remains completely consistent. If, as you say, if you speak to observers, to experts, I think 
unfortunately, the reality is we, we really don't know if Shakhtar will ever be able to go home. And just finally, what does the future hold for Ukrainian and Russian football? Because obviously they're, they're, they've got very different stories, but definitely interlinked. In the immediate and medium term, what are the football teams from both countries? What's their role in the international football football system going to be from here on out? Yeah, I suppose if you take Russia first, Russian football has been excommunicated from the industry in many senses. So they've obviously been banned from the World Cup. Russian teams have been banned from competing in European club tournaments. The Russian league continues, but no one's really paying attention to it. At the same time, Russia do remain a member of FIFA, the world governing football body, which means they can play friendly matches. For example, one of the controversies at the moment is, it's almost like classic kind of Russian approach to foreign relations at the moment, they're trying to organize a friendly match against Iran, because of course they are. And the Ukrainian National Federation has submitted a complaint about this. They're saying Russia shouldn't even be allowed to organize friendly games under the FIFA umbrella, and particularly not against nations that are assisting them in, bo in bombing their neighbors. From a Ukrainian point of view, well, their domestic league continues, but obviously there's no fans in the stadium at the moment, which means that match day income, one of the biggest sources of revenues for the team, for the teams has been massively hit. European football is, is highly globalized now. So ordinarily you'd have talent coming from all over the world to play in Ukraine. That can't happen really at the moment. It's very difficult to attract foreign talent, obviously, to go to a war zone. And I think there is probably a fear that the best Ukrainian players will just be picked off by clubs across Europe, which, which could leave the Ukrainian National League very weak. At the same time, they have quite a talented group of Ukrainian national team players at the moment. They came within one game of getting to the World Cup. They lost against Wales and Wales take their place at the World Cup instead. So I think from a national team point of view, it's pretty strong and that feeling that unity is very strong. But from a national league point of view, I expect it'll be a very difficult period. And Adam, just remind us what your podcast is called and where we can find it. Yeah, it's called Away From Home, made by The Athletic, but it's available on all podcast providers, whether that's Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, you'll be able to find it. It's a really good listen and I, I really recommend it. Adam Crafton, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and rate us and leave us a nice review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. I'm Ida Vok. Thanks for listening and until next time. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Yeah. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.